Hi, this is Bob Groves. Welcome to our Provost podcast series, Faculty in Research. This week, I am delighted to welcome George Akerlof, a university professor in the McCourt School of Public Policy here at Georgetown, and the Koshland Professor of Economics Emeritus at UC Berkeley. His research in economics often draws on other disciplines as well, including psychology, anthropology, and sociology. George has been a distinguished contributor to economics over 50 years. His most notable contributions have come in the areas of asymmetric information, identity economics, corporate looting, and natural norms of macroeconomics. In 2001, he was the co-recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. He's co-authored a handful of books, perhaps the most interesting and recent of which is titled Fishing for Fools, colon, The Economics of Manipulation and Deception. So welcome, George. Thank you, Bob. It's very nice to be here. We are delighted to have you. In our podcast over prior episodes, have asked faculty members how they got interested in what they've devoted their lives to. And at times, I've learned that these interests that end up being lifelong in their career, they sort of wandered into, and they were surprised that they ended up doing what they're doing. What's your story? So I think my, the first significant instance where I might have known that I was going to be an economist, I was living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I was probably seven years old. And Pittsburgh was, a, was a, actually a very interesting place at that time. So you would drive downtown, and as you went downtown, especially at night, you would see the flames from the steel mills reaching up into the sky, which was very beautiful. So the teacher asked us at Christmas time what they wanted as a gift from Santa Claus. And I knew what I wanted. I said, I wanted a factory. <laughs> you were seven years old. That's right, yes. And how did you connect that to the field of economics then? Well, actually, let, let's fast forward, I think, something like four years. Okay, so we're living in Princeton, New Jersey, and my father was employed at one of the laboratories there. And he lost his job. He was fired. And so at that time, I had the following thought. If my father lost his job, and we would stop spending, and then other fathers would lose their jobs, and they would stop spending, and so the whole economy would be in decline. Mm -hmm. And so the question was, what causes unemployment and why? You were now 11 years I old? I was 11 years old, yes. <laughs> so. We fast forward, and I didn't know really that there was such a thing as an economist. My view was, no, there isn't, there aren't, isn't really that much need for such a thing as an economist. There might be 10 in the whole world, and they would, that would be sufficient. Well, then I went to, to college, and I discovered, yeah, yeah, there might be such a thing as <laughs> economics. Well, first of all, I discovered that my father's loss of his job wouldn't lead to quite the collapse of the whole economy for the following reason, that my family would somehow scrabble enough money from their savings so that they'd be spending, let's say, a quarter of what they were 
of what my father had been earning. So it would only multiply by four. So, so it wouldn't be a disaster. The thing was, I actually had been on the right track because that was Keynesian economics. Keynesian economics is if somebody stops spending, then there's going to be a multiplier as other people also stop spending. And so that, that was the key. This is fascinating, you know, over yeah. fields, uh, how people define yeah. what they do is sometimes some anomaly between what they observe and, and what they've, uh, what the existing body is. And so is, is that the kernel of uh, lifelong interest in those anomalies? Is, is that what you mind as a researcher? Okay, that's a wonderful word. I like your word kernel. Yes, that was, that's been the kernel. So I think almost everything that I have done has been an offshoot of that. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, since this was a basic problem for economists that economists didn't really know how to solve, and maybe even to this day haven't known how to solve, that this was a good place to work. And from that, from what you call the kernel, one could see lots of things. Mm -hmm. So every time you looked at things in this way, you would then discover uh, things that tended to be new. So I went to graduate school and I listened to what people had to say in graduate school, but I still had this question at, at the back of my mind that this was the important thing. And then in 1967-68, I went to India and I spent a year in India. Uh, partly that was because I considered a really terrible problem, which is a really terrible problem today, is why there are so many people living so much below the standard of living that people in developed countries such as the United States and Western Europe and Japan are living at now. So I went there and I observed. And one of the things that I observed there was the caste system. Now, the caste system was an example. It was an example of non-market clearing. So people might want to work at those wages, but they wouldn't be allowed to work at those wages. There would be all kinds of sanctions against them. And so I wrote a paper called The Economics of caste and the rat race, and what I really meant it to be was the economics of caste and how that would give you a non-market clearing equilibrium, which would be just like unemployment mm -hmm. as we saw it. And, and that story uh, to me says you, you were also motivated by societal problems that, um, that would prompt an economic perspective on them that yes. might be fruitful. Yes. So I always had in the back of my mind was to be interested in the societal problem, mm -hmm. and I considered unemployment to be a major societal problem. Mm -hmm. I think unemployment still is a major societal problem. We are, unfortunately have a new societal problem, which is people who are out of the labor force, they just simply don't find it worthwhile for them to be looking at the type of jobs that they can get, and over time, Unemployment has become a less severe problem relative to, pe to people out of the labor force, and that has become a really serious problem. 
So thinking back on the on the early years, in mm. a way, you were taking on the establishment of economic theory. Uh, did you have trouble publishing early work? Were you viewed as a a rebel? So that's an interesting question. The fact is, I was a rebel, but I believe that some nice people wanted to see this rebellion because they were also worried about these questions, and they worried about these questions in the way that I think I was too, but I was able to write about them. So I think the way I was able to write about them came from another piece of good luck. So all of this I think one can think of as good luck. I had this problem, you know, and it turned out to be a uh, problem which was within the scope of what I could deal mm -hmm. with. Now then, my first year in graduate school, I had an amazing piece of luck. So, on the first day when the students arrived, it turned out that there was an amazingly civilized custom that the professors would sit in a room and wait for the graduate students to come. And the person who greeted me, and I was lucky to see, was a man by the name of Robert Solow, who happens to be maybe the greatest economist of uh, the last 60 years and is a truly great person. And so over the summer, for some reason or other, I had been learning, uh, I had been learning topology and I'd been taking simple topology and it was my desire to take algebraic topology. Now, to tell you the truth, I didn't know what algebraic topology was. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is I went to MIT and I wanted to take it at Harvard. Um, because I'm not an engineer or anything like that. But Bob Solo, he said, that I don't really know what people ever <laughs> wanted to do with algebraic topology, but I'll sign the form and I'll let you take that. And so I went up, I took this course, and it turned out that I, that I had the world's best teacher. So I had a guy by the name of Raoul Bott. And what Raoul Bott did was he didn't teach you the mathematics in its nitty gritty. He taught how to look and see the core of a problem. Mm -hmm. And I got that. Somehow I learned how to think about problems at their core. Now he was doing that in mathematics, but I could translate that over into economics. And that, I think, may have given me a, an advantage because I was able to then model things. That's what economists do. They try to put their ideas into mathematical form in a simple way. And that was that I think I was, that what I wrote was going to be welcome to the people who wanted that message to come out. Mm -hmm. When you reflect back, how do you gauge uh, the role of mentors in, in your life? Okay. I take these people, these two people, Raoul Bott and Robert Solo, as my two great mentors. Now, they were mentors, they did their own thing, each of them, but I was able to extrapolate what they did onto what I wanted to do. So Bot taught you how to identify the core of a problem, and Bob Solo was also extremely good at that himself. So he had developed the core of what was known as growth theory, theory of economic growth, 
and he presented that immensely clearly and immensely well. So if I could tri triangulate those two ideas mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. onto what I wanted to do, then in fact mm -hmm. I, I was able to get things that other people probably were not seeing at the mm -hmm. time. I'm still in contact with Bob, and um, when I w wrote the Nobel Prize, I wrote an essay which talked about the role of Raoul Bott. And he said, he was quite older at that point, and he said, I'll use this to ask for a salary raise. <laughs> it was a joke, <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's great. So one of the interesting things to me about your career is this uh, bringing in of conceptual frameworks outside of economics into mm. economic yes. uh, mainstream. Mm. Tell me how you think about that and uh, when you enter a new problem, how do you discern that, boy, I, I need some reading outside my field, I, I need some work? So I wrote a paper about caste and the rat race and then one about how that translated into unemployment. And the year must have been 1979, in the spring of 79, I went up and gave a talk at Yale. And I said that what I was doing was related to anthropology, because I'd been reading anthropological work, especially on India. I'd been to India. And a professor there, who actually later won the Nobel Prize by the name of Charling Kukmans, he asked me a question. He said, have you read sociology? Okay, now, now I'm going to make a confession. Two confessions. One confession was that I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> My real confession was I went home and I realized no, I hadn't told the truth. The real answer to that was no. And so what I did was I went and bought books in sociology and started reading on that. And so ever since that time I have been reading more and more sociology and trying to co incorporate that into economics because I think that sociologists have a way of thinking about uh, social relations which is very different from the economists and with the sociologists and the economists they should get together and then we're going to have both a better economics and a better sociology, but my view as an economist is that I want the better economics that incorporates the sociology. Do you see your work as a series of somewhat independent attempts to solve different problems in the field, or do you think of it as accumulating uh, mm. a new way of looking at large bodies of problems? I think it was accumulating. I think it was accumulating because I always wanted to be critical of myself. And so as I was learning sociology, I was trying to incorporate the sociology into the economics. So then a breakthrough came, and it wasn't my breakthrough. It was the breakthrough of my co-author, Rachel Cranton. So I had written a paper, which I sort of liked, about how people tend to adopt the same ideas and why they might be stuck in a bad equilibrium because people wanted to be like each other and then they tended to converge to the same beliefs. Now, Rachel had been my student at Berkeley. She read my paper and she wrote me a note. She said, 
your paper got it wrong. <laughs> and now a great deal of respect for Rachel. And it turned out that I was in Washington at the time and she was at University of Maryland. And so we decided we would get together and we'd, we'd discuss it. And then she had told me how I gotten it wrong. She said, you haven't taken account of identity. And so from that time forward, the key to what I've been thinking and trying to do is to bring identity economics with Rachel. So we've been writing papers together. And, uh, you know, she's the real inventor of this. I'm interested in, in the kind of advice you give to young faculty members who are trying to build their careers. So what common advice do you find yourself giving to them? I'm not sure I give common advice because it depends upon the person. My view is one should look at what the person's identity is and what they want to accomplish. And then what I try to do is see what they're writing and then see whether I can help in terms of giving some guidance. I think my qu big question that I probably always ask is, is this an important problem? So from my experience, if you tackle small problems, you get into as much trouble as you have in tackling large problems. So my view is try to look at problems where, in fact, it's going to have a big impact. One final question, George. Tell me what you're working on, or tell me what you're most excited doing right now. So I see there as being two major problems in economics. So I think one major problem in economics is its failure to bring sociology into economics. I feel one of the biggest concept in sociology that should be adapted into economics and is beginning to be adapted is people's motivation. The way motivation occurs in economics, it's what the economics professor in his or her empty room decides that's the way people are thinking and that's going to be the way they're acting. But the whole concept of why we might want to take ethnographies is that we don't know how people are thinking and ethnographies describe what people are thinking and that's likely to be very different from how economists would impose upon people their motivations. So this gives a new theory of motivation. So another exciting concern and that I'm very worried about is financial fragility. In the old days, if you go back to when I was younger, the financial system was quite simple and it was really quite stable. So the place where instability might begin would be banks, but there were no longer likely to be runs on banks since there was deposit insurance. But since that time, just a huge number of changes have occurred in the financial system. And I'm very worried that we need financial regulation to, to deal with this new financial system, which is very much riskier. And so that's another concern of mine. Well, I hope you work on that for many years. I can't tell you how delighted we are to have you on this uh, podcast, and I enjoyed our conversation greatly. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it greatly, as I always enjoy talking to you. It's been a great pleasure.